Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones, and today I sit down with Dave Grohl. Being a bona fide badass is the price of entry for a career in rock and roll. And if you ask Dave Grohl, it's the key ingredient for just about anything worth doing. His approach to life has fueled the Foo Fighters' 20-year, 11-album career and a following of very stoked rock fans, many of whom gathered at this year's South by Southwest Music Conference to hear Grohl's keynote address. The hipsters, rockers, startuppers, and next big thing developers packing the room were no doubt curious to hear how one goes about dropping out of high school, rising to fame as the drummer in Nirvana, a small Northwest act you may have heard of, and then going on to lead one of today's few remaining true rock bands. For Grohl, the answer's pretty simple. Figure out who you are and what inspires you, and don't look back. Develop that individuality by working as hard as you can at what you love. That clarity of approach drove not only his Nirvana and Foo Fighters trajectory, but numerous music side projects like Queens of the Stone Age and Them Crooked Vultures. And most recently, a new artistic title, Documentarian. Dave didn't know anything about the filmmaking process except what he needed to know most. Passion for your subject is sine qua non, and not one to do anything without it, Grohl didn't question himself. Nor apparently did Rick Springfield, Neil Young, Stevie Nicks, Paul McCartney, and Tom Petty, all subjects of Sound City, his fascinating documentary about the people behind the studio that launched an amazing roster of legendary music acts. For a guy who admits to still feeling like a 13-year-old and dressing like a 17-year-old, Grohl has something to teach all of us and shares it with off-camera in one of our most inspiring conversations to date. So pull up a chair and listen in. All right, Dave Grohl. Hi, buddy. How are you? (laughs) Good. Um, It's very nice to have you here. Thank you for coming and doing this. You're welcome. I I appreciate it. And, um, you know, it's nice to have a filmmaker on this show, too, because we've had musicians. (laughs) (laughs) We've had skateboarders, actors, but we haven't had a director. Um, I know you have another little career you do, too. but, um, But Sound City is, to me, a really deep film in terms of how far you went into the stories yeah you know what i mean like and and even even before we get there you know i was watching that uh, south by southwest keynote yeah. that you did and i realized we're like we have all the same references and when you were telling that story that you went uh to chicago and i guess it was your cousin she was a punk yeah. rocker right and you're going through her records well i went to fullerton high school and i graduated in 84 and the bands that went to school with me were the Adolescents, Agent Orange, wow. and a couple guys from Social Distortion. Amazing. Yeah. And I didn't even think it dawned on me until I saw that keynote address that the Adolescents were national. I just kind of oh, figured yeah. it was an Orange County That's thing or something. That's pretty funny. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the thing that I thought, I thought was so cool about the punk rock scene when I was young was that there was this underground network that was run by kids. So there were people making fanzines and people trading tapes and people with record companies that didn't even have their driver's license yet. You know, like I knew people that were 13 or 14 years old that had already published their own little magazines and they would sell them outside of clubs at shows. Um, and had already released two records and uh, played a show in another state and printed their own t-shirts and things like that. Like there was this real uh, sense of independence and that anything was possible. Like, I mean, from an early age to probably by 13 or 14, I knew I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to figure out how to survive. I didn't believe you had to join the stream. Like you did, you, I, I didn't believe that you had to go to college. I didn't feel like I had to join the military. I didn't feel like I had to do anything that, <clears throat> that I was sort of, uh, that I was expected to do, you know? Right. And it might seem like a shitty attitude, but I, it's not that I didn't want to go along with anyone or anything. I just wanted to find my own way to do stuff. And, um, and that's what that whole scene represented to me, 
was people, kids writing their own songs about things that were their own, you know, feelings that they had that there were that were their own, and and starting a band with people. Uh, in the most natural way, like really just to play music with another person and then to put and then to do everything yourself. It just seemed so exciting. Like there, there wasn't any real career aspiration. It was just like, God, imagine if you put together a band with your friends and you actually wrote a song and then you went to a studio and recorded it and sent it to this place where they pressed it into singles and it was worth just having one of them, you know? Like, holy shit, look what I just did. I think that that was something great about our generation in terms of all that stuff being so new that there, there was, even though it kind of was happening all over the place, there was no, there was no YouTube video on how to make a zine or how to start a band or sure. anything. But yeah. somehow everyone figured it out. And I think that what is really fascinating about Sound City and about all great documentaries is that you managed to get so much of yourself into the story. Not in that it was about you, but you managed to tell your own story about what was really you know, important to you through the story of the studio. Yeah. And I think that, that's what made it so interesting. And you know, it made me wonder, like, after having that experience as a director and making that film, what did you take away from that? Like, did, will it influence the way you make your next record? or? As, after having the experience as a director, will that influence you going forward as a songwriter? I don't know. I mean, you know, I never imagined that I would direct a movie. Uh, and I've done videos and stuff like that, and I love it. It's so fun, but it's me and the Foo Fighters. They're my best friends, so it's always fun to say, hey, Taylor, put on that dress and you know, <laughs> right. walk across the screen. And, and, uh, but... You know, I made the Sound City movie for that reason, because the story meant so much to me. You know, if I had to do a documentary on Hormel Chili, right. it would fucking blow, because I don't care about Hormel Chili. What do I know? Sound City was a place that was really, really special to me, which represented something very specific. That studio was... was um, was all about music and the musicians and the work that was done in those rooms. Um, it really didn't have anything to do with what happened outside of the studio. It was, it was a place where you would go to focus on capturing a moment and making it real and, and then uh, once you left Sound City, it was, you know, it was a whole other story. But, um, but to me, that's what music is all about. And so Sound City was just kind of a platform for me to talk about something that I really believe in, you know, the sound of human beings playing music and people collaborating and the people that, the things that you don't necessarily take into consideration, like, you know, whether it's the runners that worked at Sound City or, uh, the owners or the people that started the place 40 years ago, if it weren't for those people, you wouldn't have Fleetwood Mac the way we have it now. You wouldn't have Nirvana's Nevermind. You wouldn't have Rage Against the Machine. You wouldn't have Tom Petty's Damn the Torpedoes. Like those people made those albums happen. And to me, it just seems like the process is so much deeper than just like the rock star in front of a microphone. You know, it goes way beyond that. And um, so as I was trying to t tell the story of the studio, I was also trying to explain the importance of these, um, these things that most people might not take into consideration, like the board sure. or the room or Paula, the studio manager, mm -hmm. or Nick, the runner. Um, if it weren't for those things, none of those albums would have sounded the same. And, you know, it just kind of like humanizes the whole deal. Music's a big fucking deal. I want everyone to feel the way I feel about music, you know? I really do because it's such a, it's, it's such a luxury in life that everybody has this available to them, you know? So, um, 
So the movie, I mean, you know, as much as it was the story of the studio, there were all these layers and sub-layers of things that seemed to make sense together, you know? Yeah, well, you did a great job of that. And, and, uh, and I wonder how, you know, going into it, I'm sure, like I made a documentary, you have no idea how, how deep you're going to get into it. And once you get to one level, you go, oh, God, I just opened up this Pandora's box. I have to go all the way to the bottom of that, and yeah. that opens something else. Um, what was kind of the most surprising thing that you didn't know about directing films before getting into that? Does something stand out to you? There were plenty of technical things that I just had never imagined or considered in the making of a film. When we started the project, it was my friend Jim Rota and I. That was huh. it. I was buying the board from the studio. I thought that I would make a short film YouTube clip and just put it online for people to see the history of this board that I was now putting in my studio right around the 20th anniversary of Nevermind, the Nirvana record that was recorded on that board. So I called Jim and I said, hey, I want to do this on the cheap. It's just a short film. What do you think? Can we use your camera? Can you edit it? He said, sure. And then I got, then I asked the people at Sound City for a list of all the people that had recorded there. And they kind of laughed and said, you know, that's like 20,000 albums. I said, okay, well, give me the short list. And the short list was ridiculous. The short list was like a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. So I just got phone numbers and email addresses from each one of these people, Rick Springfield and Leaving and uh, Stevie Nicks and uh, Tom Petty. And I just started calling and writing, saying, hi, my name's Dave. I'm going to make a movie about Sound City. Who's this Dave guy? Yeah. Foo Fighter. <laughs> Believe me, <laughs> it happens. So, uh, so everybody agreed to do it because I think they appreciated the studio for all the same reasons that I did. Um, because of what it represented. Because how cool it was. Sound City was cool. So the project sort of like blossomed into this bigger, meaner film. And the first meeting I had was with a couple people from my management company and my friend Jim Rota. And I said, look, I don't want any fucking Hollywood movie people involved at all. Because I've never done this before, the last thing I want to happen is for someone to come to me and say, actually, that's not how you do it. Right. Because great things happen when you have no idea what you're doing. Same with no. making a first record, right? Exactly. Right. It's like it's the same thing as the first Foo Fighters record. I recorded that in five days by myself and I didn't have a producer and I just had these song ideas and I'm not the greatest drummer or guitar player or singer in the world, but I just needed to get this shit off my chest. So I went down the studio, did it there, and it turned out okay. Yeah, and what would have happened if there was like a guy there with you telling you what to do? It would have sucked. It would have been terrible. I would have hated it. I needed to like purge. I needed to do it for myself, by myself. So you approach making Sound City kind of in the same way. I approach everything in life that way. Interesting. I never took lessons to play the drums. I learned how to do it on my bed by listening to fucking Rush records and punk rock. So the first I took one drum lesson and he's like, how do you hold your sticks? Yeah, you know, that's not how you're supposed to hold them. I'm like, okay, I don't have $30 an hour for me to sit there and relearn everything that I've learned. So the same with guitar. I took a couple guitar lessons and then I wound up playing and I play guitar the way I do it. I don't know what any of the chords really are. I just, I know the basic chords. But, if, but the way I look at a guitar is like a drum set. I look at the lower strings like they're kicks and snares, and I look at these like they're cymbals. Really? So when I play, it's almost like a kick-snare pattern. So these being the kicks, or if I'm doing a, 
accentuate that like it's a kick or snare pattern. It's so funny hearing you say that because it makes total sense from a drummer's perspective how your riffs come about. Yeah. And then, you know, if you want to ring out the higher notes, it's almost like when you're playing the drums, when I play the drums, like in a verse, I'll play tight on a hi-hat or on a ride or something like that. But then when the chorus comes and I want to open it up, I'll wash on a cymbal, make, and just to give it this lush, like whoosh, like it sounds like waves or a washing cymbal. I do the same thing on a guitar where I let the, the strings ring out um, in sort of like suspended notes. And, but I mean, nobody taught me how to do that. I just sort of thought like, oh, that sounds good. Hearing that, it makes total sense. And, but it's also nice to know that, that this far along into your career and done so many records, so many, you've done giant things, but that you still are connected to that approach so that when you're sitting in the edit room, you're like, well, let's try it this way. I mean, were there times when the editor maybe showed you something and you said, can we just oh, yeah. try? Well, uh, that was one thing I didn't understand was the, the, uh, the dynamic of relationship between an editor and a director. So I've never had to really deal with that before. How, how was that? It was okay. I mean, but it was, you know, I had a pretty specific idea of how I thought things should be. I mean, when I first came up with the idea for the film, I wrote it down in this journal. Mm-hmm. Um, the outline of the film and all the things that I wanted to achieve in each one of the acts and the three acts. And, um, and I found it maybe a few months ago as I was cleaning out my garage. It was exactly the film. I was so happy that I actually achieved what I wanted, that I, what I set out to do. Um, but there were times where, you know, I really had to sort of explain my vision and just cross my fingers and hope that everybody either had my back or was along for the ride. Like, okay, are we seeing eye to eye on this? If, if we are, awesome. If not, then we should sort of figure that out. Um, but as that first meeting that we had where I said to everybody, I want to keep it tight. I don't want some big movie studio. I don't want a bunch of people that have never been to Sound City. I don't want a bunch of people that don't understand uh, what it's like to pick up a guitar and get in a room with someone and jam. So we had this really tight crew of like-minded musicians and, uh, and music lovers. Right. I mean, it was probably, in total, I think, a day on set would have been about nine people. That's really small. It was great, man. But still larger than, I mean, it's, it's certainly different than making a record where maybe you have a producer and an engineer, and those yeah. are the only people outside of the, the artists, right? So yeah. was that a learning curve, trying to figure out how to, like, you know, deal with the crew? And Well, I mean, I'm not sure what other directors do, but it seemed like, for me, 99% of my job was being a cheerleader and trying to get everyone to be as excited about this as I am. So I was, I was trying to like share this enthusiasm at the same time explain the specific vision or idea that I had for whatever we were doing at the time. And it was great, everybody trusted it, you know? I mean, it's funny, in the Foo Fighters, I write the basic ideas of the songs, and then I go to our drummer, Taylor. And he and I sit down and we record these demos where we sort of determine the dynamic of the song. Mm -hmm. Is it a fast song, is it a slow song? We've got the melody, we've got the basic idea, the core of the song, but where's it, where are we gonna take it? And then we go to the other guys, we go, okay, here's where we think we wanna take it. And then everybody sort of grabs a hold of it and pulls it in their direction, which ultimately makes it a bigger song. Um, so as much as, as I might seem like the leader of the band, it's kind of, it's like a benign dictatorship, you know? Yeah. And, but with directing the film, it was like, I really felt like I was in charge 
And it kind of freaked me out. Like I'd never had a job like that before. Where everyone you know, looked to you, I'm, what are we doing next? Right. What are we filming next? Where do we put the camera? Like, I'm so used to having a boss, you know? And um, it was funny for me to be the boss. And getting into the stories of the individual artists that you profiled from Stevie Nicks to Leaving to Tom Petty, um, uh, all, were, were there some things, maybe one thing in particular that you uncovered that you had no idea that just blew you away? Well, the story of Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham meeting Mick Fleetwood at Sound City was a big one. I'd always thought that was legend or myth. I didn't know if it was true. And that wasn't legend. That was exactly how it happened. exactly how it happened. And I mean, you know, there were lots and lots of anecdotes about, you know, cocaine and whiskey and ghosts and sure. shit that I'd never heard of before. Stories I'd never heard before. But uh, the most, the biggest surprise in making the, the movie was going into the studio with these people. These legends, you know, Stevie Nicks or Paul McCartney or... Uh, you know, Rick Nielsen and, and they're, they're legends, you know, they're musical giants. These people have changed the world and they come into the studio and they're just as, as vulnerable as any other musician, you know, like, you know, you'd think that because their, their musical history is so legendary that they'd kind of walk into the studio, pick up an instrument, be a badass and just split. They don't, they come in and they, they work at it and they ask for suggestion and they're not sure about themselves or the part or their voice. And it just kind of, I, I was surprised, you know? Yeah. Cause it's hard to, sometimes it's hard to imagine that this person that you, that you idolize is entirely human and has all the same vulnerabilities that you do, you know? But it, maybe you idolize them like subconsciously because of that, or maybe the thing that drew you to them in the first place is exactly the thing that you were trying to um, tell. The story, the story you're trying to tell in the movie is that the people who recorded there, who, were, who gravitated towards that place and made their best records there are those fallible humans who, you know, who yeah. are willing to like, chase mistakes and do that kind of thing. Well, that was one of the things that was so great about Sound City is that they were famous for recordings that were imperfect, you know? Like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers going into the big room and recording Damn the Torpedoes as a live band, basically. And in order to do that, to make it sound great, you have to play great. But it's the subtle imperfections of each performance, whether it's the drummer or the guitar player or the vocalist, that makes that sound, um, that sounds like people, you know? And so being in the studio with these people and watching them work as hard as they can to make it sound great, but at the same time appreciating all of those inconsistencies that was really inspiring to me, you know. I was in this band called Them Crooked Vultures, mm -hmm. which was uh, Josh Homme from Queens of Stone Age on guitar and vocals, and John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin on bass. John Paul Jones is, without a doubt, the most brilliant musician I've ever worked with in my entire life. And we were recording live. When we made that record, we'd go into the room, we would have it, so tight that we could just hit record, do one take, and it would sound great. So what we would do is we would do a take, do another take, maybe do a third take, go in and listen and pick one, and that would be the album version of what you'd heard. So we would listen to the drums. Okay, we got the drums. Now we'd listen to the bass. We'd listen to the bass, and I'd hear like these really small pick scratches or... Uh, speeding up a tiny bit, or a weird fret. John Paul Jones would listen to it all the way through and say, yeah, no, that's cool, sounds great. Now, a modern day producer would hear all of that and say, no, 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 we gotta fix that. That's an, that's an inconsistency, or that doesn't, doesn't sound perfect. Ultimately, what happens, what I've found, is that when you're listening to something that's 
pristine and perfect and looped or repeated, it kind of makes you tired in a weird way. Huh. Like it makes my ears tired. I don't know what it is. But Maybe John that, could listen to the whole thing as a as a overall deal. He could step back from it and not be like a player who's like, yeah, I gotta fix that. Like, absolutely. He he could appreciate the performance, you know. And going back and listening to his music or Paul's music or Stevie's music, I listened I listen to that stuff now and I I hear I I'm starting to realize why I can still listen to it. You know? I don't know if I could listen to Ace of Bases, The Sign, <laughs> as many times as I've listened to Kashmir. Right. For lots of reasons, but mostly because I discover something new in a lot of these songs that were played organically every time I listen to them. I hear something that I hadn't heard before. What I hear you taking away from that, which maybe you already know, but maybe making this film totally solidified it for you, is that preserving as much of the human in the in the song and in the the creative element, whether it's making a film or making a song, yeah. that's the thing that makes other people connect to it in the long run, to you. Well, it's a funny thing, Ex- expectation. You know, uh, how good is good enough? Or how do you know when it's good enough? Right. Like, it took me a really long time to accept that I am not, going to sing like Freddie Mercury ever. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> and it took me a really long time before I realized, oh, that's okay. Are you self-critical about your voice or well, were you? Of course. I was more than I am now because, um, because I realized how, how ridiculous it is to try to be something that you're just not. You know, I want, I want to be a great singer. Or I want to be a great drummer. Or I want to be a great father. Or I want to be a great driver, whatever. But <laughs> you're a pretty good driver. I can, oh, thanks. I can, did you see me park today? Yeah, it was great. That was good. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, expectations as an artist, it's funny. Who's to say mm-hmm. what's good or what's bad or what's right or what's wrong? And are you making art if you're if you're trying to make it for somebody else, for, uh, up to someone else's expectations. You know? you know, it's a funny thing because I swear to God, it's every musician has this conflict. Every one of them. The difference between seeing Radiohead at the Hollywood Bowl where they're all on their knees playing with their guitar pedals and the coolest light show you've ever seen, giving you an experience that you've never had and we'll probably never get again, versus Queen at Live Aid. Right. <laughs> They're two entirely different experiences and can be appreciated for two entirely different reasons. But it's hard not to want Live Aid. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I used to have that picture of Freddie Mercury standing in front of Wembley Stadium as the wallpaper on my cell phone. I would look at it every fucking day because I thought, how inspiring. It was his intention to get 75,000 people to sing a song together. When that happens, it's fucking magical. It's crazy. It gives you a whole new belief in life and the human race. And it's amazing when you see that happen. I mean, it's the same as when you go into a political rally where you've got 80,000 people all coming together because they believe in one thing and they want to make a change. That's a really powerful feeling. You don't see that all the time. It's almost the same way with the song. When you have that many people grouped together by one emotion, it's... It's powerful. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. If you think you may be depressed or if you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious, 
Uh, you're probably not alone. I sure know that I've been in all those places throughout my career, and even in the last eight or nine months, it's not an easy time to feel great about things. And BetterHelp Online Counseling Services offers licensed professional therapists who are trained to listen and help with issues, including anxiety, depression, relationship conflicts, sleeping difficulty, family conflicts, self-esteem, and more. And if you're like me, if you're an entrepreneur or an artist or somebody who has had to rely on themselves for most everything. In other words, if you've built your own life and you're going through this world trying to figure things out like I have been, there are times when you just need help. You need to sort things out. And I've been a big proponent since my 20s of therapy. When I first went to therapy, you know, it was like a needle in a haystack to try to find somebody that could help me. And if you can imagine me back then going through the phone book and searching for therapists and asking people for recommendations, it was a whole new world and it was a world that I didn't know anything about. And so, you know, it took me a while to find someone that I really felt good about. And, and I feel great about this company, BetterHelp, because they've sort of managed to figure all of that out and make it much easier for you to find the right person that can give you the help you need. What they do is you simply fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. You can schedule secure phone or video sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited message, communicate with your therapist, and best of all, and of course, everything you share is confidential. If you're unhappy with your counselor, if you don't feel like it's a good match, you can just request a new one at any time for no additional charge. I think about if I had had this kind of access when I had started, it would have saved me a lot of time funny story, I used to ride my bike to therapy because I was trying to combine two of my self-care activities in one, therapy and physical exercise. And uh, I remember often being late and racing to therapy on my bike and coming in out of breath. And well, it's a lot different now and it's a lot easier. And BetterHelp has really figured out how to do this from the privacy of your own home. It's just a great system. So join the 1 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. BetterHelp is an affordable option and the listeners of Off Camera get 10% off their first month with the discount code CAMERA. Go to betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com slash camera. And you can talk to a therapist online and get the help you need. Now back to the show. I notice in your songwriting, there is definitely like this thing, this like verse thing where it's a little more minor chord, a little more edgy, a little more math, a little more, you know, for lack of a better term, bitter. And then it makes your choruses that much bigger and sweeter. It's like a relief or a resolve. Yeah. And I like, is that, is that something that you think is just you from your influences or is that something where you sit down and you go, this is how I write a Foo Fighters song? For years, I would write things that I didn't consider Foo Fighters songs. I'd write something really heavy or something fast and aggressive, and I'd think, well, that's not a Foo Fighters song, that's just something else. And then I'd write something acoustic, beautiful and delicate, and think, well, that's, that's something else, that's not really a Foo Fighters song. And I started thinking, wait, if it's coming from me and we're playing it as a band, well, then why shouldn't it be a Foo Fighters song? Because who's to say what is and what isn't? I thought for years that what we do is something really specific and I didn't really want to go outside of that because I felt like it was the perfect place to have it. Right. So then maybe 10 years ago, I thought, okay, let's... Let's see how wide of a playing field we can, we can work into. We made this double record where one CD was sort of faster, more aggressive rock stuff, and another CD was this gentle acoustic-based mellow dynamic music. Um, and ultimately what that did is that pushed everything out enough so that we had this huge space to work within. Well, so now all of this area can be our own. I know that the Foo Fighters are capable of doing things that people have never heard us do. 
I know that we're capable of doing things that you wouldn't expect us to do. That might not be what you want to hear. <laughs> and I do think about that sometimes because I don't want to be a band that plays with its back to the audience. I don't want to be a band that invites 80,000 people into a stadium and then challenges them. Right. It's almost the same as collaborating with someone on a, an album or a movie. You extend your hand to the listener. You know, I want, to, I want, I want, I want you to be a part of what's going on. I want you to, to be a part of, of the experience. Or, I wanted to ask you about that. If, if that shift is maybe writing a little less for an audience and a little more for yourself, or if that's just like maturing as an artist, that's just what happens. I think that there, I think that you can do both, you know? I mean, I feel creative and I feel fulfilled. And when we go to play a gig and I see the entire stadium dancing or singing along to what we're doing, it makes me even more fulfilled, you know? I don't know, I think that maybe the early years of of all of the, when we were young and we listened to so much noise. Right. The dissonance and the noise and confusion eventually wasn't the challenge anymore. The challenge was simplification and melody. In Nirvana, that was all we tried to do. We didn't Kurt's songwriting was basically a process of simplification. You being in Nirvana, that's when I first heard of you, and I, like everyone else, assumed, oh, he's a drummer, right? And then it's not till later that I find out that you were probably a guitar player first and a songwriter first, and drums were a way to fill that, those ideas out. So, I mean, that must have been kind of wild, getting in that position and also being a songwriter um, like, was there any room for your ideas in Nirvana or for you to present songs? I'd, why would I ever want to complicate the songwriting process? <laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty good as it was, you know? No, I mean, you know, it was that famous joke. Like, it was the last thing the drummer said before he got kicked out of the band. Hey guys, I wrote a song I think we should play. You know? yeah, but, but your career has borne out the idea that you have this amazing ability to write songs, too. I mean, was that hard for you as someone who, you know, obviously you have that in you in, in a very deep way to, to kind of have to take a back seat on that? Well, that's kind of how the Foo Fighters started, was being a drummer and being in Nirvana, or even before Nirvana, when I was in the band Scream, I had a friend who had a eight track studio in his basement. And he would ask me to come over and play drums on his solo material. And I would. But then I started asking him at the end of the night, hey man, do, do you have any extra tape? Can I just record a, an idea really quick? And he'd say, sure. And I'd record the drums first and then I'd put a bass over it and a guitar over it. And then I'd make a cassette and I'd go home and listen to it and think, wow, I just made a song by myself. It's cool. And I'd start writing lyrics. And, um, but this is how the whole Foo Fighters thing started. When I was in Nirvana, I didn't really feel like I needed to be a part of the... Of, I didn't feel like I needed my songs on a Nirvana record, you know? Because Kurt was an incredible songwriter. And, you know, part of being a drummer, I always thought, was just laying out the foundation and being there to be the machine that propels this whole, that propels the song. Um, my favorite drummers aren't like fusion drummers or jazz drummers. My favorite drummers are disco drummers. They're the ones you don't even you don't even think about, you know. I I listen to ninety two point three. I don't listen to some fucking like jazz prog metal station all day long. Right. I listen to like old school funk, like Zap, 
and the Gap Band and Cameo and shit like that. That's my favorite drumming because it's like a heartbeat. It's a simple rhythm. I can appreciate Buddy Rich or fucking John Bonham, of course, is the greatest rock drummer of all time. But ultimately, I loved the idea of being a real powerhouse disco drummer in a punk rock band, you know? And that sentence has never been said before. Probably not. <laughs> but that was, it was, that, that's what I was trying to do with Nirvana. And Kurt was writing great songs. We were a three piece, which is a lethal uh, configuration in any rock band. You can make a lot of noise with a three piece. So, no, I never really felt like that. But I would go home from rehearsals or I'd come home from tours and my friend was now living in my house. I had the eight track in my basement and I would go write songs. So that first Foo Fighters record is all stuff that, most of it is stuff that I'd written while Nirvana was still a band. But I didn't really feel that, I didn't want to say, hey, Kurt, you want to play fucking, I'll stick around or this is a call because we had better songs, you know? That's, uh, no, it's interesting because what it, what that kind of tells me is that whether or not Nirvana had been cut short, eventually you probably would have gone and done Foo Fighters anyway. Yeah. Right? Probably. I mean, it's, uh, you know, at first the idea was that I was going to release uh, an album, an LP, and not put my name on it, call it the Foo Fighters, put it, release it on my own label, and just let it go. And coming out of Nirvana, the last thing I wanted to do was like, formerly of Nirvana, Dave Grohl and his new band, because I was terrified. I'd never been the singer of a band before. Well, and plus, I mean, how are you not going, like, that's just set up to be compared to that. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just, like, did you find that, like, you know, at a certain point, you were just like, well, there's, that's just what's going to happen. I'm going to have an uphill battle with anyone oh, taking absolutely. me. Oh, absolutely. Like, how, oh, how did yeah, that I mean, the feel? First, the first few years, look, when Kurt died, I woke up the next day and thought, I am lucky to be alive. So much that still to this day, I feel that every morning when I wake up because it's so strange to think that, wait, that person was just here and now they're just gone and I'm still here and maybe I, tomorrow I could be gone as well. It, it was a, it was a profound revelation that I had the day after he died and it changed everything. Like it, it honestly changed so much about my life where I felt, I felt like the most important thing was just appreciating being alive, good day or bad day. It didn't really matter to me. But after Kurt died, I, I, I really felt that way. I felt like, okay, I'm going to try this. What do I have to lose? I'm going to start this band and I'm going to be the singer. In some ways, your rock career went, it didn't go backwards, but you had every crucible and rock cliche right at the beginning. I mean, you guys had overnight crazy sales. It started a fashion movement. You know, there were every excess and, and issue and, you know, down to the spouse that gets in the band's chemistry. And you went through all of that right at the beginning when you were really young. And then you're faced with like, now I'm going to start my own band. And, and then it, like it would seem to me that that would be the ultimate opportunity to look at that experience and go, this is what I'm absolutely not going to take. That's exactly what it was. Did you do that? It was like, the greatest lesson in learning what not to do. Like what, what, were, what was the thing that you, or were there a few things that were like, I'm definitely not repeating I'm that. I'm definitely not going to do heroin. <laughs> well, there's, that. there's just some things that yeah, you know yeah. I mean unfortunately Nirvana became too big too quick you know the band had been around for a few years before I joined them and they they experienced 
a perfectly comfortable um, underground punk rock existence. Getting in the van and playing a gig for gas money and sleeping on someone's floor. Um, it's not the most glamorous life, but it's fun when you're 19, 20, 22 years oh, yeah. old. It's great. Um, you know, bands are like families that go through uncomfortable growing pains. And if it happens all at once, it's just too much to handle. You know, I got lucky because when the band started getting popular, um, I'd stopped doing drugs by the time I was 20 years old and I really only took sheets of acid and smoked pounds of weed. I was never like a coke or a heroin dude. So when the band got popular, if I ever felt overwhelmed with what was going on, I would just go back to Virginia and sleep in the bed that I slept in when I was five years old and have barbecues with my friends from fourth grade. And so you had this foundation that you could go back to that just right. brought it back home to you. I had all of these cool experiences when I was young to fall back on or to look back on or to use some as perspective or something, right. especially musically. I mean, growing up in Washington, D.C., in the punk rock community, by the time I was 13 or 14 years old, that was music to me. I mean, I had a Kiss poster. I had Rush records and stuff. But then this is what music became to me. It, was, it, was, it became something real. It wasn't show business. There were people playing music and getting together and doing it for the sake of playing music. The reward was just doing it. You know, the reward was being badass. All I wanted to do was to be the best drummer in Washington, D.C. Or to be the best band on the bill at the Sunday hardcore matinee, whatever. Like, that was the reward. It was enough, you know? I mean, like, when Nirvana first signed to the David Geffen Company, we just wanted to be as big as Sonic Youth. Fuck, God, if we could only be, I could get, like, my own apartment. Right, right. It'd be great. I mean, we were still selling gear for food. So, I mean, so, so when the band blew up, I had that to hold on to. I had Washington, D.C., and I had my family and my friends. And if it ever felt like it, too much, I could just retreat and say no. It's a big part of being a musician is saying no. You, you, ha you say it's like a family, too, family dynamic in a band. And uh, I've been in enough bands to know, like, there's always kind of that you know, there's, there's definitely the family dynamic. And I wondered if with you being maybe younger and newer, was there a pecking order? Did you get beat <laughs> on more? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, I was the fifth drummer of Nirvana. So I was just waiting to get fired the whole time. <laughs> I just thought, I'm just going to get fired. Um, but what we did together, we sounded good. I mean, I knew, I knew that had any one of those elements been replaced with someone else, it would just sound different. Right. No, but I mean, that even, even when you know whatever you're making, there's that thing in the room where someone's the big brother, someone's the little oh, brother. Oh, for sure. And, and like, because I've seen that in so many bands. Oh, yeah. I mean, was that, were you that guy? Were oh, you the yeah. little brother? Well, yeah, I was, the, I, I was the new guy. I was the youngest. And I was the drummer. Bad combination. Three strikes, you know. Kurt obviously was uh, was the creative force behind the band, you know. And Chris and I were there to make it sound like Nirvana. Um, it's funny when you hang. Whenever I spend time with Chris Novoselic, the bass player of Nirvana, it reminds me of the. Nirvana aesthetic, which a lot of people never really understood. I think a lot of people imagined it to be sort of like this darker, more depressive sort of Joy Division trip or something like that. It really wasn't. It was more like Python. Like it was more, uh, it was insane. There was this, the sense of humor was just so bizarre and abstract and, and off that it was fucking hilarious. It was fun to be in that band. Um, the later years got a little weird, but, yeah. um, 
but there was a lot about that band people didn't necessarily understand. Kurt was fucking hilarious. You know, you, you look at him like this tortured, uh, depressed, um, you know, Gen X icon, but that fucking dude was funny. He was funny. And lighthearted too, you know? I mean, as much as, as he maybe had trouble feeling comfortable um, all the time. He was, he was, you know, also funny and easy to be around. Right. So, well, I would think also that, that the whole management thing and, and what happens around that, you know, in Nirvana, probably those decisions are being made without any consult with you. And then you start your own band and you, you have the ability to change that dynamic. Like, did you take that away from? Well, you know, it, that, it's one of the things I talked about in that South by Southwest speech that independence as a musician is so important and the reward of doing something yourself is so great that I try to encourage any musician, new musician or established musician to just do it themselves, you know? With the Foo Fighters, we try to keep things pretty simple, you know, by having our own studio or making records in my garage or working with people that we consider family or within this tight circle of friends. We try to keep it really simple. We find that it's the people outside of the bands that complicate things so much, you know? One of the great things about coming down here today to talk to you was that you emailed me and said, hey, I'm doing this thing. Do you want to come down and do it? I said, sure. Okay, I'll meet you there at 1130. Uh, well, I've learned you know, as I you get You can older. imagine that had this gone through any of the conventional channels, how complicated it would have been rather than just people getting together to do something pretty simple. Yeah. To having, me, it, it should be that way with every aspect of the band. All the time, right? Like having this taught me that... Um, if you can go through the back channel, it's always easier, always, always. it's always quicker, and no one's afraid of upsetting anybody, and so things just get done. When I told everybody that we were gonna make our last record to tape, you know, the last Foo Fighters record we made to tape because I wanted it to sound like the Foo Fighters. I didn't, have, I didn't want anyone to have the option of manipulating the way the band sounds. So I didn't want one fucking computer plugged into anything because that would give someone direct access to the sound wave and to be able to manipulate it in a way. So I thought, okay, we're going to make the record not only in my garage, but also to tape. So the first song we recorded, we made an edit on the song, razor blade edit, tape it back together, old school, wind it back and start shedding. And everyone's like, oh God, yep, tape is shedding. No, we're gonna have to back it up to a computer. Or, you know, it's, it's not, we, we need to back it up to a computer. And I thought, wow, okay, so t 15 years ago, if a tape was shedding or a reel broke, what would you do? You just play the fucking song again. You know what I mean? Right. Just play the fucking song one more time. It does bring up a point for me, which is with where the industry is headed, the idea of making money off a record really changing, and, and you, you know, saying, start your own thing, make it yourself. What would you tell four guys in a garage that had a good batch of songs? What would you tell them to do today? Go play live, just play live. Honestly, if you're good at what you do, people will recognize that. I really believe it. I really believe that going out and playing good songs live as a great live band will make you successful. I really think it will. And it doesn't matter if you're at the shithole down the street or you're on the side stage at Bonnaroo or you're headlining Lollapalooza. If you're a great band with great songs, people will notice it. That's it. That's all it is. It's fucking, it's that simple. Fuck product placement and fucking labels and A&R people and all that bullshit. It doesn't 
fucking matter. I swear to God, it doesn't matter. And if you back that up with the idea that just playing those great songs in your great live band is enough reward for you, then you're fucking set. But you gotta be badass. You just have to be really good. It's the other things that make up for your musical inability. You know, I mean, as, as a drummer, I never felt like I'm gonna be on the cover of Modern Drummer Magazine because I'm the best fucking drummer in the world. I just knew that if you put me on stage without a fucking PA or floor monitors in a small club, that I would beat the fucking shit out of my drums so much that people go, God damn, did you see that fucking drummer? Right. Whoa. And I'd walk away from every show like, there you go. I just beat the fucking piss out of those things and people saw it. People took notice, for sure. I mean, and that was great. So at the end of the show, I was a successful musician because I had achieved what I wanted to achieve. So I honestly believe, I mean, I know lots of musicians that went down to South by Southwest and said, well, it's easy for you to say. I'm like, man, I was in the same fucking position you are in 24 years ago. That was it. I worked in a fucking furniture warehouse and I wanted people to like my music. So I played out as much as I could, you know? And if you really, honestly, I'd, like I said, if you're passionate and driven and focused in what you do, if you're really fucking good at it, people will take notice. That's basically it. I mean, I don't understand the industry. I don't understand, I don't understand where music is headed. I don't really understand technology. I just know that when you walk into a club and you see a band that blows you away, you are gonna follow that band. You're gonna either buy their CD or you're gonna find them online or you're gonna see them the next time they come to play. Right. And it it's, takes, that's what it takes. You don't have to stand in line at the song contest on TV to become a fucking popular musician. You know, to stand in front of some judge that doesn't even fucking play an instrument on their own goddamn records, tell you, no, you're not good enough. Right. Fuck that. You know, go blow people away in front, in their face. And so it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, I honestly believe it's that simple. It's so affirming to, to hear that everything you need is right within you. And maybe the thing that is standing between you and whatever you want to make is actually all that stuff that you don't need to worry about, which is, well, other people like it or what would other, what would someone else do? Like, and I, I see that that's kind of, you know, one of your great secret weapons is that you seem to understand that simplicity and everything that, that makes your voice your own and it's inspiring. You know, just as you wouldn't want someone else to come in and manipulate or change your uh, idea, I always try to keep myself from doing the same thing, you know? To appreciate an imperfect performance or an off-the-cuff idea or a lyric that might seem maybe uh, unfinished or in such a simple form it doesn't seem maybe sophisticated enough. The concept of self-editing and, and controlling that output is kind of strange to me. You know, when I watch Keith Moon play the drums, I can't imagine that he had choreographed this performance beforehand, you know? Like, right. it's manic, it's crazy, it's exciting, and it's exactly why everybody knows who Keith Moon is. So, I think that that should go for pretty much every part of the process, you know? That's what I like about seeing what I, when I see a real band really playing on stage, I feel like there's an element of danger, mm -hmm. that, you know, and there's an element of something, it, it could go wrong, it's a high wire act, and I think those are probably the moments I gravitate towards most as a, as sure. a fan or a listener. There's a willingness there to be a little dangerous, a little badass. Like, that to me is what I would miss about a world that 
paid too much attention to tempos or... Yeah. yeah, I don't know when it happened that perfection became so important. To be a good player was something everyone strived for, I'm sure, but perfection just seemed unattainable. It seemed like a put-off. It didn't seem cool. Because you don't really want to control that or contain it. That's, I think, what people like to see. Right. And it feels good. I mean, you know, it's like being sent out of a slingshot or something. Well, it seems like perfection's kind of the opposite of taking chances, you know? And, and if you're too worried about being perfect, you can't take chances. Um, but, you know, that's, that's exactly why I admire what you do. It's because you seem like a guy that's willing to take chances and access your inner 13-year-old that, that was in your room listening to records. Like, you don't seem too far from that guy to me. No, I'm not. <laughs> there are times where I feel a little guilty that I dress the same that I did when I was 17 years old. Right. Well, like, I've got my skates. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. At what point do we have to become old? I guess that's the secret, is maybe we don't. I hope not. Well, listen, thank you for doing this. Thanks. I really appreciate it, Dave. It's that's been, right. I mean, even though I felt like I knew you before, I feel like I really know you now. Thank you. Thank you.